Hello and welcome to Killjoy FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Ray Filer, you can follow me on Twitter on at Ray Filer. Today we're talking about women's work, in particular feminised and caring labour, by which I mean the kinds of work that stereotypically is done by women or is available as an option for women to do. And I'm so pleased to have with me here Selma James, coordinator of the Global Women's Strike, which is a global network of grassroots women who fight for the financial acknowledgement of caring work, and also Carrie Mitchell, a spokeswoman for the English Collective of Prostitutes, which is a sex workers' rights organisation. The inspiration for this show came from Tony Mack, who is an activist with the sex workers' rights group Sex Worker Open University. She suggested a panel between cleaners, sex workers and housekeepers as an alternative to endless debates on sex work, which posed the tired and already answered question, should sex work be decriminalised? If you're wondering, the answer is yes. Exceptionalising sex work as a uniquely exploitative form of work overlooks the huge number of ways in which, globally, women provide transactional sexual services to men, whether paid expressly in money or not, whether as workers or as wives or girlfriends. It also overlooks sex work as an emotional service work, which is often the only option open to women, or the best option open to women. Instead, today we're going to be talking about sex work as one part of a spectrum of roles that are conventionally open to women. And when we talk about feminised labour or women's work, we acknowledge that many non-binary people are also involved in feminised labour and roles traditionally regarded as women's. We also expressly include trans women who are overrepresented in particular in sex work alongside cis women. So, Selma, let me just come to you first. What is women's work or feminised labour? And why is it that women do the burden of care? Well, you know, women reproduce the human race. Uh, nobody has noticed that per se, I mean in those words, but it is true. And the fact is that because we give birth to uh, and feed children with what comes from our bodies uh, when they are first born, there is a way in which we continue to be the carers of the children, of the men who may support um, the women who give birth, and in fact the carers of the whole society. It's terribly important that we make clear that there is biological, important, crucial, fundamental biological work, but there is also the work that society has agreed that women should be doing and that women need not be paid for. And so we say we want this to be acknowledged as a social contribution, that we are working and don't have to take on more work if we are the carers, and that the way in which society should reward that work is precisely so that we have economic independence. Any of us who care, that is women, men, anyone uh, carers, you see because women do it and because it is not seen as terribly important after all could women be involved in anything that important and because the, the focus of the society is the market and production rather than human beings rather than our reproduction whoever we are well then caring work is not valued and we want that caring work to be valued and we want everyone in the society to be involved in that caring because that's the only way to have a caring society. 
So you would say that your political work is oriented around valuing care, both as something that um, is inherently valuable and should be recognised because it's valuable, and as something that under capitalism should be waged in order to make relations of power around care um, visible. Well, that's perfectly right. That's exactly what we think. Okay. Um, before we before we go on to talking about your work with the Wages for Housework campaign and many other campaigns since, um, I'd like to also come to Carrie. And um, from your perspective, when, when we talk about feminised labour or women's work, what, what does that mean to you? Well, most sex workers are mothers. Most sex, are, sex workers are women. Internationally, 90% uh, of sex workers are women. Um, and there are more, but there are more men doing sex work now uh, because of increased austerity and it's always been something of an option for some men who want to go into sex work but primarily sex workers are women, mostly mothers, mostly single mothers supporting families you know, in the face of very, very few viable alternatives, economical to prostitutions. You know, we might be uh, cleaning for 20, 30 hours a week in order to top up you know, a very low way, another very low wage, or a very low welfare payment, or a handout from a husband or a partner, uh, and we might come home exhausted and have no time for our children, and then we might know somebody who do, does sex work and discover that we can do one, you know, one or two short days and come home with much more money and be able to support ourselves and our children on that money and have time with our children. Uh, so, sex workers. I very much appreciate all the campaigning that's going on for um, all the housework to be recognised and paid for because we know really that if we just had the money for the work that we're already doing, raising our children, looking after everybody, then we would never have to go into sex work in the first place out of need, out of that dying need, which the vast majority of sex workers do do. And so do you, do you both share a solution to this? Is there a way in which you see um, the undervaluing of women's labour being resolved? Yes and no. Uh, the first yes is good to begin with a positive. Uh, it would help enormously if women organised to get money for the caring work that we and others do for all carers. Um, whether we work for strangers, whether we care for elderly parents, uncles, brothers, or whether we care for our, our own children, or whether in some way we care for people who need our care, and often people who need care are also carers of others. It would be tremendously important if we didn't have the struggle for survival on top of the caring work that we absolutely have to do. It would be tremendously important if we were not impoverished all the time. On the other hand, there is a deeper question, and that is, is the work that we do for each other, the caring work that we are all involved in all the time, because that's a crucial part of every serious relationship, is that why there should be production? That is, should production serve this relationship, or should we all be at the disposal of the market? and of so-called production. And that is 
really a fundamental question in the society, whether caring is the end and aim of production or whether what we do um, outside of our relationships on behalf of employers, on behalf of structures which we've had nothing to do with building, whether working for them should be the end and aim of our lives. And that's what's at the heart, really, of the question of caring. Whether the caring for each other, the concern for each other, the value of human, and not only human life, but the value of all life and the value of our planet, whether that is what we should be organizing to protect and enhance and support, or whether we don't really matter, but the market really matters and we should be serving it. That's the crucial question of our time. That decides almost everything about our lives, whether the environment is really going to be tackled as the priority it is, because it's human and all life, or whether money's going to matter. And you know, Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. And now it swears with the basest language of all. So it, se it seems that um, at a certain point, maybe in like the 70s or something, feminism kind of got lost in a, in a side alley that said what we really need to be campaigning for is women's entry into the workplace, um, ignoring the fact that women had always been in the workplace. And, and it seems that maybe in that dichotomy that you've just outlined, where you say the question is between like the market and care as a value that we organise around, that kind of feminism kind of went off on saying what's really important is the market and what we need to do is gain power within the market. Do you think that, it, how do you respond to that now? Well, first of all, there's a history to this, and I'll be brief because I haven't got two hours to discuss it. But fundamentally, when women won the suffrage in this country, and this happened in other countries as well, but I don't know them as well, there was a fight among the feminists. Some feminists said, this is our chance. I can be an editor of a newspaper, I can be a member of parliament, I can be a great writer, I can be the manager of a great corporation, or at least I can be anything that my talents allow me. I no longer have the restriction that I don't even have a vote in the country. And there was another wing of feminism headed by a woman called Eleanor Rathbone, and she said, wait a minute, the vote was only a preliminary goal. It was the, what we needed in order to really change every woman's life. And if, if we want to change every life, then we have to look at the sweated woman worker and at the housewife who's being battered and at the widow who doesn't have food to feed her children and we have to make sure that those women, first of all, the overwhelming majority of women, those at the bottom, that they have access to the, a share of the wealth of the country. And she said, it is not only our individual desires and ambitions that should matter, but that all women benefit from the great victory we have just had of winning the vote. And that woman, Eleanor Rathbone, her tendency, that is her political tendency, had 
wonderful working class women within them. She was a wealthy woman and she had come from a wealthy Liverpool family which had ships, a ship-owning family who had refused to carry slaves. So she had, you know, a tradition within her family of social accountability. And she fought, despite the feminists who were personally ambitious and following their own individual star, she fought with everybody in the society. She fought with the unions, only the miners thought she was any good. She fought with the social workers, she fought with everybody. She just gathered people up as much as she could to say, look, we want the mother who worked so hard to have a share of the nation's wealth. This is, you know, a necessity so that when she goes out to work, if that's what she chooses to do, she has a lever to get a reasonable wage. She doesn't have to take anything that the employers give her and that the men respect her because she comes with little power in her pocket. The male workers respect her and understand that they must stand with her if they want to stand for themselves. And she got hold of uh, the man who did, I always forget his name, who, who constructed the welfare state. What report? Beverage. Um, Lord Beveridge, who wrote the Beveridge report on which the welfare state was based, heard about her. Well, everybody knew her by then. She was determined and energetic. And uh, he invited to her to meet with him. And she said that the mother should have, you know, money for her own independence. And he was quite taken with her. And when he planned the welfare state, he gave his report to the government, he included child allowances. That is, for each child except the first, he proposed that the mother got a payment. And the government accepted the plan. She was lobbying and campaigning all the time on this and many other subjects uh, for the liberation not only of women but all of all kinds of people in other countries and um, then she saw how little the child allowance was going to be and she was deeply disappointed because she expected that they would come up with a proper wage for women to have financial independence. And all she got was a little money, but she said, all right, we'll take that and move on from there. And in fact, this year is the 70th anniversary of the first payment of what used to be called family allowance and is now called child benefit. And we're celebrating Eleanor Rathbone's great accomplishment uh, this very year. So, so what we're facing now is not something new, but an inheritance of a struggle among women where the state has definitely been interested in individuals who are ambitious. They can use that type, but the rest of us, well, we'll catch as catch can, and they have never been too concerned. And, not un and until recently, even the fact that women were paying for the austerity, like 
uh, I think the the, li the women's library said 80-something percent of the cuts have been against women. Yeah, yeah like so disproportionately on women. Yes, yeah. deeply disproportionately. Uh, nobody worried about that, you know, because it was only women doing women's work. Yeah. And, you know, it's natural to us. Yeah, and even to talk about it is considered divisive, right? Exactly, yes. You're trying to make trouble between women and men as if it's all light sweetness and light until now. But am I right about the family allowance, that it was paid to the woman? It was. And it was a right, and that's very important because, you know, your husband might get pissed off with you, he might rape you, he might say, I'm not giving you housework money this week, but you have your family allowance. Yeah. or your child benefit, and you can, you, can, you can put it on one side when times are good, and there must be many, many, many thousands of, thousands of women who have gotten away from situations, you know, violent situations, domestic situations, by putting away the child benefit, which could not be taken away uh, from them. Now, it's, there, is a, there is a change, isn't there? That I think it's been it, cut recently. It's... Um, or no, it's not. Children. It's no longer universal. It's no, no longer universal. No longer completely That's universal. terribly important. Because if your husband and you together earn over a certain amount of money, then you don't get child benefit, which is a very well. It's it's a it's not a victory. <laughs> it's a defeat because that woman uh, needs that child benefit. She may she may lose her job at any time and needs that child benefit. You know, as a as a right. But also the universality meant that it was not a charity because yes. it had nothing to do with how much money you have. Yes. You are raising these children. This money is yours every Tuesday at the post office. Yeah. And that was terribly important because there was no stigma attached to getting child benefit because the Queen could get it. Well, I don't imagine she went to the PO for a few quid, but she could get it. And that meant that nobody was lower than anybody else because they had child benefit. There was nothing charitable about it. And that's what they've removed. They, they want, you know, the deserving poor. Oh, God. As if there were some people who were undeserving poor. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? The only ones I know who are undeserving are the rich. They Absolutely. don't do any work. And so the, and the, the child benefit that you're talking about, would you say that that is, was a precursor to the kind of financial recognition that you demanded with the, the Wages for Housework campaign when it started in, in the 1972? 1972, it was absolutely... We knew, we didn't know much, okay, but what we knew was zero and one were worlds apart. If you had nothing, well, you have to start from scratch, but if you had one, you could go more easily to two. And that's what family allowance, which it was called then, meant to us because we had a family allowance on which we could build and which we could increase. In fact, the first action of the Wages for Housework campaign in this country was that the Edward Heath government wanted to take the money and put it in men's pay packet. That was the, their contribution. Yes, and we formed a women's family allowance campaign all over the country. And I have to tell you one incident. 
which was, I live in Kilburn, in London, and we had national meetings of this national family allowance campaign to save the family allowance. And we had a day of action, and all of us in different parts of the country went to the post office on a Tuesday when women went for their family allowance. And my experience was this. Madam, would you consider signing this petition? Oh, I don't sign anything my husband hasn't read. But Madam, the government wants to take family allowance away. But that is the only money I can call my own. Where do I sign? And that's what it meant to them. And that reinforced me in the view that women wanted money, needed money, and had a right to money of their own, and that the family allowance was the first step towards that. When I, when I first heard of the Wages for Housework campaign, which is now some time ago, I think I had a, a very misguided understanding of what it was actually about. And what, what I thought was that the demand was for women to have money for housework. Um, and that's it. And so, and so obviously my, my initial critique was to be like, well, I don't think women should just be doing housework. I think, you know, doesn't that just cement women in relationships and, and family units that might be violent and oppressive and economically disempowering? Um, and it took a while until I understand that, uh, until I understood that the Wages for Housework campaign was so much of a broader political movement than that. And, with so much more anti-capitalist content to it, and I wonder if you could maybe explain what's wrong with that kind of argument about the Wages for Housework campaign. I think the most important thing is that people don't know what work women do. It's so hidden because it's so without money. For example, what we want to make clear is that women do all kinds of work um, without wages, I think one of the most striking is the justice work that women are involved in. When a black mother faces her child being stopped by the police for stop and search, who goes and fights for him? You know, it's his mum. Maybe it's also his auntie. Maybe it's also his sister. But it is almost always the women who come forth. And that's a crucial part of the work of society. That's the work of making the society just. And that's a lot of the work. But there's also, now they're talking about how babies learn. And babies begin clearly to learn, it seems, even before they leave the womb. But certainly, once they come out, they're picking things up. Carrie has just become a granny again. So she's just seen her newly born grandchild. Who teaches the child? Mothers do more teaching than any teacher. They teach the child about the society. They teach the child about the dangers. They teach the child about relationships. They're teaching all the time, you know. And carers are making the society work, making it possible that people can survive and that people can flourish. And it's absolutely amazing that when this glue, which in a way connects us, brings us together and keeps us surviving, when it is removed, people go mad. People do not flourish. 
people are furious with each other because there's nobody to make peace or, you know, or really be supportive because everybody is so busy working. You know, it's, it's really a crisis that we find at the Women's Centre. People come in and there's nobody to support them. They're all at work. You know, and all the work that housewives used to do, some of it is done, you know, after you get home or before you go out, but some of it is not done. And it is missed, deeply missed, that the children come home and there's nobody to talk to or to guide them or to soothe them or to find out what their lives are about and what they feel about it and what help they need. And if they're bullied, you have no time to go to the school and complain because your employer is breathing down your neck. This is an everyday occurrence, you know, so that the work that women have done, which has been invisible and not respected and not supported by the society, you know, is really work of making the society and making society bearable. One of the things that women do, or whoever is, you know, the house worker, because men do this, there are some men who do this now too, and I'm sure others as well, you know, they soothe and comfort and make sure that people are comfortable in their society and in their relationship, and we can't live without that. I'm not saying that women should continue to do it alone. I'm saying that women should continue to do it and everybody else should be doing it too. And that means that women will do less of it, but it will be done. And that's the problem that we faced as a women's movement. We were so fed up with being carers that we didn't know how to care less but for people whom we cared for not to suffer from the absence of care. And the only way to do that is for the whole society to be caring. And so the, the claim at the time was something like, in order for these outcomes to take place in which everybody is caring more, and the care is being done better and with less of a burden on women, but without removing the care, is for the state to provide financial recognition because by making that demand everything is reconstituted like all of this stuff that's going under the radar is being brought out into the light that's and that was the demand yes yeah and that means that uh, you know one of the things that the what when the women's the new women's movement began in the late 60s and early 70s you saw a lot of single mothers who were involved I think more single mothers than married mothers, for example, because single mothers had very little money. They had income support, which was very low, or social security at some point it was called, but it was little, but it was theirs. And they had no man in the house to say, you can't go out tonight. So they put their kids on their back and they went to Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp, or they went to the lesbian meeting, or they, went to something else or they were involved in some strike of women but they were active and lively and present and speaking and learning all kinds of skills which is what a movement teaches you you know you learn to express your view in ways that 
communicates to others and the and women were in you know they were inventing ways of struggling and of you know changing the world for themselves and their children and I, I thought it was a fantastic period for single mothers Carrie how does the work that you do with the English collective of prostitutes connect to this discussion about care and, and, the, and the work that Wages for Housework initially did in um, making this demand for a wage for unpaid care? We um, all recognise that if we had money for the work that we're already doing as mothers, particularly as mothers, but as carers, then we wouldn't be so pressed and so desperate to find other ways of getting money into our lives and you know be driven into the sex work industry, into the sex industry, as we are. Um, but I think that um, sex work is just, sex is one of the areas of our lives that we all recognise. We don't want it to be work, but we, you know, frankly, when it comes down to it, for a lot of people it is work, and sex workers have said, um, you can get money for it, it's work, it's one of the things that you do when you're, the chips are down, that's what you go into. And then you come up against the laws. And the, but the stigma associated with the prostitution laws is not dissimilar to the stigma associated with being devalued. I mean, the criminalisation, being a criminalised worker devalues your life. That's what enables the police to go after us, to raid us when we're working together more safely, to go after us on the street and try to humiliate us and fine us. Um, because we're criminalised, our lives don't have any value. You know, you're like immigrant people, immigrant people's lives don't have any value because it's a seen as it's criminalised, essentially. So the criminalisation of sex work is very similar. The stigma associated with the prostitution laws is very similar to the lack of value that um, housewives, mothers, you know, the, the, all the caring, the other work, which is also not valued. So our lives aren't valued, mothers as sex workers, our lives aren't valued as mothers, our lives aren't valued as carers. It's, it, you know, that's, that's a very big similarity for us. Would you agree? I do. And, and I think also that there is a romanticism which has existed in the women's movement about sex, which is completely inappropriate. Uh, you know, it's as though, it's as though what sex workers do is strange to other women. That's not true. We, we all, you know, we all have relationships where we have to accommodate ourselves, not all, not every single individual, but most of us, where we accommodate ourselves sexually because it's less work, because we don't want to confront, because there are things that are more important, because our children will suffer if we don't accommodate. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which our sexuality is compromised as a matter of course, as part of the service, the carers of the society. And what sex workers do is that they, they take that part of the life of the women and of feminized people. And the men do it too. They take that part of the accommodation 
of your sexuality and they say, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to get paid for it. And I'm going to get well paid for it because I'm going to be hunted as a result of my criminality. And, you know, we used to have a slogan. I used to speak for the English collective of, the, of prostitutes. I was their first spokeswoman. They educated me, you know. And one thing that we used to say among ourselves, does good money make women bad? <laughs> you know, because we thought that that's what it was really all about. You know, women should not have money so easily by doing only some work. They have to be towing the line generally in the society. And women are persecuted for that. And we also have a badge. We are all bad girls. Yes. And it's <laughs> which men also love. Gay men, trans men also love. Yeah, a lot of women people like that badge. I like that badge, to be honest. I do too. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that, um, that sex work is seen to be so particularly exploitative when it is, in fact, like one of the only areas in which predominantly women have said, I'm not going to do this for free. That's right. Yes, I'm going to be more in control. This is where I'm going to have some control in in the relationship. And, you know, we all, as you said, it's not so different from a domestic relationship. You know, it's just extraordinary when sex workers meet clients and how much clients just accept that women will do sex work. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary that they will pay for a service without batting an eyelid. You know, when you met, you said, you, I remember you, you were telling me that when you met with, um, with a sex worker who worked uh, as, quite, as a high-class um, escort and uh, met with a, a high-class man in yes. society. You know, in a well-known man, A well-known man <laughs> became even more well-known later yes. on really... to discuss you know, the problems of sex work being, being criminalised and all he was interested in was how much he charged. That's right. All the I way mean, in the taxi unabashed. To, to the meeting, he was asking, well, how much does she charge? How much is it? You know, he was very interested in her cost. Can I say one other thing? That uh, we're talking about high-class hookers, but um, our organisation, the ECP, we start with a situation of women who work on the street and who are most up against the police and are most stigmatised and whose lives, you know, and who are most humiliated by the police and who are most gone after. And, um, in fact, there have been leaps and bounds taken by uh, some people in positions of authority. There's been a very prestigious committee that's been sitting looking at the whole question of, of, uh, of sex work recently, um, who, to our great surprise, because we thought that they would be facing in a different direction, have come out recently in the summer for sex workers who work on the street not to be criminalised, for women who work indoors to be able to do that collectively. And, that is, uh, and for um, records... Um, criminal records to be expunged. That's very, very important because once you have a record for prostitution offences, it's almost impossible to get out because you go for a job, probably a low-waged woman's wage, you know, to be a nurse or a teacher or a nursery nurse or a, something to do with looking after people, caring for people. Those are women's, you know, mostly the options that women come up with. And the employer looks at your record and sees you have a, a record for sex work, and it's, impo- it's almost impossible to get another job. 
um, because that criminality, that stigma, has really finished you off. Anyway, this high, um, very prestigious committee has, has come out with these extremely important recommendations. And what is so extraordinary is that they have recommended that women who work on the street should not be criminalised because they recognise that going after women in that way, fining women, imprisoning women for non-payment of fines, um, doesn't have any effect on the numbers of women who are working. And they must have, although they haven't said it, they must have recognised that it's the lack of money which puts us there on the street or indoors. It's our lack of money. It's nothing else, basically. Uh, so finding us, putting us in prison, is not going to have any effect uh, on reducing the numbers of women who are working outdoors, which they are continuously concerned about, because that's the visible face of women's poverty. That's really why they, they really don't like uh, you know, to see women working. They don't like to see people, homeless people, on the street. It's the visible face of their brutal homelessness policies. You know, all that stuff is very, um, you know, they are, they don't like it to be seen. They don't like that visible face of the poverty that they impose on us to be there. Yeah, so so, that, so, so, put, so, so there have been very, you know, very great leaps forward. You know, the whole sex worker movement has really um, made extraordinary steps forward that we didn't even realise ourselves until this report came out with those recommendations. Yeah, it seemed as if there was a bit of a sort of, institutional turning point I don't know whether that's too optimistic and obviously things can always go back in the wrong direction but um, certainly since the Amnesty International mm. resolution in favour of decrime absolutely and, and the idea that that now big big committees who are making laws on sex work might actually talk to sex workers and sex worker organisations that seems to be a bit of a, a change absolutely to some extent um, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic about that We'll see. We have to. I mean, they, they haven't they haven't um, proposed everything we need, and it, and the whole thing isn't finished up with, and we're still pressing them on various other measures that are absolutely crucial to changing the prostitution laws, mm. to getting decriminalisation as we need it. I wanted to talk a little bit also about um, a more a more kind of recent, relatively recent phenomenon in the way that. Um, women's involvement in work um, both changes the market and changes um, and changes how work is conceived of as a whole. So one of the things that has obviously happened over the past few decades is more women have gone into jobs than were previously, or sort of, you know, jobs that are seen as jobs that were previously involved in working. And um, as I think you've already pointed out, Selma, um, one of the things that has happened because of that is that fields in, in which women have gone into in greater numbers have become less valuable or seen as less valuable. Wages have dropped. People talk about the feminisation of the labour force. Um, so you see contracts going, you know, people are given less good jobs, people are given less good hours. There's a rise of zero hours contracts. Everybody's very under the auspices of providing flexible work for women with children, what they've done is, is make jobs crap, or even crapper than they were before. So um, one thing that, uh, that my housemate Kirsty Lorraine pointed out to me today, um, there was this terrible article in The Guardian written by Deborah Orr about zero-hours contracts, in which she wrote, and, and I quote, conservative rhetoric about entrepreneurship and flexibility 
when it's routinely railed against by the left, alienates people who passionately want social justice and want to carry on teaching a few yoga classes, doing up bits of furniture, selling them on the internet, running a few food stores at a few festivals, sleeping in with the kids when they get an Airbnb client, slowly working through a correspondence course and keeping it all going with a zero-hours contract. And what she's saying there in this, what I think is like a quite astonishing bit of writing, is that really zero-hours contracts are good because they give people choice and power. Um, <laughs> you're both shaking your heads in dismay, which is how I felt when I read it earlier. That is absolutely shocking. Yeah. Um, I think that there's another women's movement on the way at another level of the society um, and the zero hour contracts are going to be one of the first targets of it. I think New Zealand has made them illegal. Zero hour contracts are now illegal in New Zealand and I hope soon if Jeremy Corbyn wins this election and is able to bring the Labour Party to be the expression of the thousands who are joining it, that we will see zero-hour contracts make, being made illegal in this country. But what is absolutely certain is that women are not... They, we, we know there's something called the glass ceiling that some women aim to, to break but we think it's a class ceiling and they want to break out of the class that we're in together and be on their own trip. And women are turning against that and are turning against giving up any relationship that matters, that really helps their children because they have to go out to work. And most women, they want to go out to work at least they want to get out. They don't want to be imprisoned at home, but they want for the first few years of their children's lives to be with them and to be available to them to give them a proper start in the society. And women are saying this all about, and I have no doubt that in the next months, especially since this movement is growing and there's a kind of instability in the establishment that we are anxious to, <laughs> to increase, really, because the establishment has not given, has stood on our heads all the time, that women will begin to make their own case, all kinds of women will make their case for their right to have a varied society, a varied life, and not to be buried in one piece of work or another. And that is absolutely on the way. And the, the question of our having no power in the face of the market and being encouraged to believe that unless we have a job outside the home, we are not contributing, that has absolutely to be undermined and destroyed. The idea that mothers and other carers, you know, don't contribute is a vicious capitalist lie that we have absolutely to put to bed. Yeah, I think you said it. Um, do, you, do you think that your analysis has changed? Like, has the changing face of, of work and labour and care made you think differently about the things that you perhaps were saying in the 70s, 
Well, I, I've, my ideas have changed in two directions. The first is that women being out to work means that we are far more confident than we were to make our own demands and to find a wider arena for the struggles that we're involved in. And that's why I think, you know, in the next period, we'll see all kinds of actions by women, which will be the kind of product of the new experience um, that we've made. And I can't remember what the second point was. <laughs> I don't, oh yes, yes, I remember now. I don't think now we can talk about either nationalized or privatized because some of us at this women's center have seen what the women with the government were able to construct in Venezuela after the revolution there. And what happened was that People organized services, mainly women, but not only, organized services their way, what they thought was useful to their community, and with community people and with professionals, for example, doctors and nurses, and then the government funded it. It wasn't nationalized, but it wasn't privatized. It was something else. It was the community organizing to suit itself and the government backed it. And I think that that opens possibilities because we don't want women to, quote, go home. We don't want to go home. We want to be at home sometimes and we want to be in the wider society most of the time or some of the time, or whatever suits us and suits our relationships and suits our particular needs. But we can't be held down in one place. And the only way to do that is to reorganize the way we care for ourselves and each other, the way we raise our children, not only in the nuclear family, nuclear if you like, but I would like six families and eight families. I would like to be able to go out for an evening without worrying about what's going to happen to my children or my grandchildren as it is now, and that the neighbors and friends are part of my community and therefore part of my child or children's lives so that they fit into a wider circle which is not so deeply emotionally dependent on one or two, very often just one person, that's very bad. We want to have emotional relationships with a number of people that makes us feel secure, it makes us feel less dependent, it gives us a wider experience from our birth. You know, we, we're learning and we want to learn about a lot of people and a lot of things. I think by the time children are 11 or 12, they should know at least three or four languages. And it's possible, by the way, with, with refugees, children coming here, they can teach the rest of the kids in the class what their languages are, the kids pick it up. You know, they're not like us. They learn fast. They couldn't be linguists by the time they're 21 if we reorganized the schools to suit the population and suit the development of the children. I just think that we have to open our minds to a 
whole new experience, a whole new way of relating. And we can't be held back by the lack of resources because there's plenty. A billionaire can support most of it and there's so many billionaires. What do we need them for? They don't do anything good. The other thing that we absolutely have to consider is the rest of the world. The idea that we're only going to fix up one society, it's impossible. We want to change the world. We want to make it possible for other people to organize the societies that they want. We need peace. We have to end up the war. This is enough. We don't want any trident. We don't want any billions going to new arms. All this is money for caring, for caring rather than for war. And you know, this is the prospect. Once you begin with the perspective of caring, that's the conclusion you come to. And it's not anybody imposing a plan. Nobody can. We must find out what we want and what we need as individuals, as communities, as families, you know. And we have a lot of ideas, but we have to open our minds more and we have to demand a lot more and we have to organize wherever we are, with people like ourselves and with people who are quite different. And make our demand and insist on getting what we need. So you, that, was quite a, that was quite a comprehensive overview, but, but if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying, um, as well, alongside the total overhaul of society and of capital, um, a key thing is to completely re-envisage the family, um, to make it much broader than the kind of nuclear family models that you were originally talking about. And I guess that's that's already happening a lot in, you know, queer communities and polyamory communities, and um, even though those things are kind of still minority communities, maybe they provide one vision for how that might look. Um, and I guess you're saying you need a more global perspective, and maybe that's what you do with, with Global Strike now. We do. Yeah. We do. I mean, we have... A domestic workers organization in Peru and Dalit and tribal women in India who organize together we they are part of our network and really it's a problem to organize together if you are Dalit and tribal women and there are many prejudices against each of you and um, academics in Ireland and all kinds of people anti-racist and other struggles, struggle in the prisons, the mothers running back and forth from prison to courtroom to lawyer's office. We're involved with them on a day-to-day -day basis via Skype. That's the secret of our communication. Uh, we have to be in touch with each other and consider the situation of each of us when we're making plans for ourselves because we really are one world and must always be addressing that. One thing that I also wanted to talk about, we're coming towards the end of the show, but I, I have this, this question about, because the two frameworks that we've, we've really been talking about are you know, care on the one hand and work on the other hand, and those are, seem to be the two big themes. 
And I was interested to note quite recently that I'm aware of the slogan sex workers work as a, as a slogan that many sex work activists campaign around. Um, I found out more recently that, that there was another slogan, domestic workers work. Um, and those are two very important slogans and, and there are all sorts of parallels that we've just been discussing. And then I wonder how you mobilise behind those kinds of slogans if you also view work as something which is inherently exploitative and, you know, it's not... We want to argue that within the society in which we have to work and we have to labour in order to survive, conditions within that should be as good as they possibly can be on the one hand, but we also want to say ideally none of us would have to participate in this in this labour market at all and we shouldn't have to be doing these exploitative jobs which are exploitative in virtue of them being work in the first place. I wonder if you have some thoughts on that. Well, I think that's what we've been talking about, that the valuing, recognition and valuing of all the unwaged caring work that mainly women do has to lead to rec- such a recognition by the state that, or such a movement that they have to recognise that work through payment of money so that we are in a position to refuse all the exploitative highly exploitative work, whatever it is, and we are also able to uh, rebuild our communities because when we're not, we, we want to be out to work, we do, or we want to be out of the house. Out. That's we right. do want to be out, <laughs> definitely, but we also don't want to be out 100% of the time. We, we do, and when we have an alternative to going out to work, then we're in a position to have a community, you know, for our communities to raise our children in a more collective way and to be able to rely on each other, which definitely communities, when, when mothers were more at home, in fact, there were, the communities, you know, were much more like that, but then the mothers didn't have any money and want, you know, want to go out. So we want everything. We want everything. We want to uh, have um, all the caring work that we're doing recognised and paid for, so that we have the choices about how we, um, how much we go out to work, and how much, you know, how we can build our communities and raise our children or look after older people in our communities much more collectively. And that gives us a choice. You know, making this demand and getting the money for ourselves is going to always gives us choice. Money always gives us choice. It doesn't institutionalise us. It gives us the choice, and I think that's one of the misconceptions that you raised earlier on. You thought that wages for housework would institutionalise, although you didn't use those words, women in the home, but it doesn't. You know, when you've got the money, you can get out. You can afford the bus. <laughs> it's the opposite. And I think that... Um, but but I, think, I think what I'm asking is, is, is something more. It's, okay. do we, is the end goal to get rid of work? Is it, are we saying goodbye to work, goodbye to the labour market? Are we completely, is the, is the overall vision, you know, perhaps it's idealistic, but it's, it's maybe important to hold on to a kind of revolutionary framework, right? Like, do we get rid of work? Is that the end point? Well, it depends on what you mean by work. Yes. I think we have to redefine it. I think that we want to get rid of onerous work that is put on people for life while others walk away 
And I think that we want to do varied things. I think we want to, I, I, I just have no idea what I'd like to do. I mean, I've always wanted to learn at least one instrument and there are various other things that I'd like to do with my time. At the moment, the most creative work I can think of doing is trying to change society. That is very creative work, but it, I don't want to do it forever. I want to change it and get on with it. And many people want to do many things. We do not want to be in other people's power. We do not want others to decide whether we can eat or whether we can be with our children or what kind of medical attention we want. I mean, I like homeopathy. I wouldn't go near the, the uh, big pharma. I think they kill people. You know, I want this kind of medical help or this kind of help for my, my bodily needs. And I think the choices are there for us, but we haven't the power to access them. And I don't know how we will organize society if we are not under the control of a state that makes war and that decides to bomb people every now and then. They don't ask us. When we say no, they do it anyway. No, that's not the kind of life we want. And those people, they're bombing, they're like us. And in other words, that we are paying for people like ourselves to be bombed. No. That's not a caring society. And, and we, we have to stop it and do something else. And it's an amazing thing, a political movement. I don't mean the rhetoric. I mean when people start to get active on their own behalf, everything changes. You know, 600 and something thousand people have joined the Labour Party. That's not a party, that's a movement. And people are changing every day and learning things about how they should relate to other people every day and finding out more about what they want and what they no longer want. You know, it's an, a learning, a great learning process, a mass learning process that people are learning by their own activity. And that is changing what we want, as I say, and what we don't want. And we don't know what we're going to come up with, but we do not want to be pushed around. And we do not want to be paying for this government or that to push others around. And there's, we are definitely, we want to be international we want to be in touch with people who are making struggles similar or not so similar to our own. But we want to know what they're doing and what they're thinking and why they think that and how they work their business and maybe we have something to learn from them and maybe we have something to teach them. It's got to be open. We just want to get out of the boxes that we've been put in and the definitions that have been placed on us in all kinds of ways, including an age. You know, you think that people stop thinking when they're 60. Well, I'm here to say that's not true. Thank you so much. Um, 
it's been a wonderful conversation and I'm really appreciative that you agreed to appear on the show.